what's up, Crypt Nation? Bryce Paul and the Notorious Pizza Mind coming at you per usual from the sunny and 70 San Diego. All right, so if you haven't heard yet, Pete's and I just finished writing a 290-page book called Crypto Revolution, Your Guide to the Future of Money. And we did this so that anyone anywhere in the world can learn about really how cryptocurrency and blockchain technology are putting the power back in the hands of the people. And really, we wrote this to equip the masses with the tools to profit from this revolution. So whether you invest in crypto or something else, the point is that you need to escape inflation, which is a hidden tax on your savings by investing in your future. And we think that crypto is really the hottest market, which has the most upside potential. And we are so confident that Crypto Revolution is the perfect starting point, whether you're the crypto curious or the seasoned investor just looking to learn about the world's newest asset class. All right. The best part is we're giving it away literally for free. Okay? For free. All we ask is you pay for shipping uh, just to help offset the cost of the book. We're literally making zero dollars on this and are just doing it to give back to our amazing community of listeners. All right. So go to CryptoRevolution.com today and get your free copy. All right, all you good, wonderful citizens of Crypt Nation, tuning back in here, your host Bryce and the Notorious Pizza Mind from Crypto 101. Pete, how you doing today, buddy? You know, I had to take a moment of self-reflection and just kind of stare out the window at the ocean. Whenever I look at the ocean, I kind of feel really small, like all my problems are small. And I wondered, why are blockchains so massive and ocean-like? Why can't they make them smaller? And then we stumbled upon Coda Protocol, which is literally the world's smallest blockchain. And we <laughs> needed to find out more about it. Emre Tekasalp is the head of business development for, yes, Pizza Mind said it, the world's smallest blockchain. And if you're wondering, if you didn't even know blockchains had a size, uh, if you didn't know that that happened to be a problem and actually one of the main uh, reasons why blockchains fork, like, you know, the Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Core fork and all sorts of different things. You might have heard a term called the scaling debate, right, where we have, you know, Ethereum and different ways to scale the network with off-chain uh, type solutions. Coda comes in at the base layer and uh, does some really, really innovative cryptography that we're not going to get too technical into, but we'll get it. We're going to give you the high level. Uh, Emre is again the head of biz dev, so he he could break things down uh, in layman's terms. Anyhow, Emre, welcome to the show, man. We're we're really stoked to dive into this with you. Thanks for having me, guys. And <laughs> Pizza, I'm going to have to borrow that intro from you. That was awesome. Anytime you want to repeat me, do so at your own risk. <laughs> <laughs> that is why we call him the notorious Piz. Uh, Emery, so, um, you know, before we really even dive into who you are, or why we're talking to you, I want to know what your vision for this future that you're building, like, why are you here in crypto and what is kind of the end goal that you have in mind? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think, you know, everyone um, has this vision of a fair and efficient future in their minds, I guess, as human beings, um, mm -hmm. we, we have an innate, all of us have an innate drive to... Uh, be open, be um, democratic, equal, uh, and and you know also not have to go through much trouble or or, or you know um, friction in our lives. And technology, at the end of the day, is a tool that enables both. Right? Um, there's so many right. things in our daily life that has enabled this. 
uh, from the internet to computers to basic things like, um, I don't know, your, your sink in your kitchen or your toilet. But this technology hasn't really been applied to trust before. And money is, is a manifestation of trust as well, one of them indeed. And, you know, cryptocurrency is, as we all know, is this revolution about money and, and trust. Um, so my, my vision of a, of a future is one where trust is fair and efficient um, and, and blockchains are an amazing way to get this done. So, so is really the, the kind of the crux here is that cryptocurrency um, fabricates trust or, or how, how would you like we never really think of trust as a technology. We always think of trust as something that is given or granted by a person, right? An, an intermediary, somebody that grants you trust. But is crypto really actually making trust a provable mathematical thing, essentially, that people could rely on now that we don't have to trust institutions? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it all comes back to this fairness and efficiency. Just maybe an analogy is the internet, right? Communication or information is at the end of the day is a very human thing. And when, when we think of the internet, you know, that when it was first getting created, people didn't necessarily think of it that way, um, in that it was a human thing, but it is very human, right? We're all on our phones every day, or our laptops, um, you know, talking to other humans and connecting with them. And, and, and I think the same thing goes for trust, in that um, whether it's about trusting your friend or trusting an institution, or as I said, sending money to someone or, or, or trusting that your money will preserve its, its value. These are things that we interact with daily, every day, but it just never has been translated into technology. And cryptocurrencies and blockchains just make this way more efficient and easy. Um, it's, it's, it's the equivalent, as they say, of what the internet did for sending mail is, is going to be what crypto does for money and, and trust. So someone listening right now kind of following along thinking, well, I've got Venmo and I had PayPal before that. That seemed to kind of do the trick. But what makes cryptocurrency so powerful? Great question. And I think that goes also back to my just personal motives for why I um, ended up in crypto and eventually a coda. Just if I can give examples both from my personal and professional life. Um, so personally, you're absolutely right. If you spend most of your time in the same country, right? The financial infrastructure is, is relatively um, well designed to meet your daily needs. However, the pain point becomes really visible the minute you start crossing borders or, or start living elsewhere. So I, I myself, um, I'm originally from Turkey. I moved to the United States about seven years ago or so. And, you know, the minute you start establishing your life in a new, new country, none of those things work anymore. Um, you're, you're stuck having to rediscover everything, having to go through an expensive and, and you know, rather frightening procedure of transferring over your entire worth, um, stuff that you built up throughout your entire life. So, so that is, you know, uh, that becomes really important uh, as we go into a world that is more global, that everyone is just um, way more mobile. So, so that's one reason. The other is, um, again, just prior in my professional life, um, I used to work at Intel, and, and there I was product managing a payments product, a, a traditional payments product using credit cards. And that really allowed me to see how complicated and complex, and not necessarily in a good way, 
the existing payments and, and, and financial infrastructure is, um, the number of entities and service providers that you have to deal with to set up a simple credit card service ser- payment service is, is insane. It's, it's so hard and antiquated that I started looking for something that said there must be a better way. And, and not just because for the, you know, like the technical elegance of it, but you've just realized how hard innovation becomes uh, when you have so many, so much complexity and so many intermediaries and, and, and service providers that you have to deal with. Whereas, you know, the minute money can become digital, when maybe not the minute, you know, we, as we've seen a decade into crypto, we need more than a couple of minutes perhaps, but at least you lay the foundation for, for trust and money that can is not just more elegant, but um, can support a lot more innovation and, and open um, freedom of, of experimentation. Yeah. Um, so it, I think you, that's why. Yep. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I, I wanted to hit on this idea that you mentioned. Um, you, you, you had noted that you're from Turkey, right? Yep, that's right. And the, Tur- the Turkish lira, I mean, recently has been getting pretty inflated and devalued. Um, what is life like over in Turkey in regards to like how its economy has affected society? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think, uh, unfortunately, the the media, at least here in the West, um, you know, paints these different countries with a bit of a broad brush. Turkey, you know, just for context, it's, um, I think, the 17th or so largest economy in the world, it has 80 million people. It's, it's a very old country. And it's always been, you know, kind of a relevant country in the global scope. And as such, it, it has learned um, to deal with both um, a global world as well as um, inefficiencies in its own economy. So when you know you read in the news as rampant inflation, Turkey has had way worse inflation, and it it its citizens as well as the country has learned to deal with this. Not it's not perfect, obviously, but the the way it works, just to give a tangible example, is if you open any traditional bank account in, in the country, you I forget either almost automatically or you can just apply on your smartphone without any additional steps, get dollar and euro accounts. And those are all tied together. You can easily sell your Turkish lira to, you know, one of those other two currencies, do all sorts of, or get access to all sorts of financial services. So life, yes, it's, it's hard, right? Especially if you, um, you know, um, are not as well educated, but the financial infrastructure works. It's, it's there. So it's unlike, and I'd say this is probably true, not, not knowing it as, as closely for other, what I would call um, developing nations, um, you know, the old, brick tims of the world uh, when, when emerging markets developing nations were like more of a thing in the global financial system. But large enough countries and sophisticated enough countries have ways to deal with this. Whereas, um, at least I'm being told, places like Venezuela, unfortunately, do not have some of those alternatives. And that's in, in places like those are, are where I think technologies such as Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies more broadly become a more viable alternative. I do not think and neither have I seen credible evidence that Turkish people are flocking to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as an alternative to Turkish lira or US dollars. Rather, there's a different angle there in that uh, without, you know, rat holing too much on this, it is one of the first times that um, an average Turkish citizen has had easy access to a large enough capital markets that is also volatile enough, right? That's, that's why many people trade cryptocurrencies. But um, if you look at the local Turkish stock exchange, it's not that big. 
And it's not easy at all to get access to the U.S. equities markets or, or European ones. So, you know, the fact that you can open, anyone can open an account either using a local exchange or a global exchange and start trading, you know, this hundreds of, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of a market. Um, that's why I think Turks are suddenly starting to gravitate a lot to cryptocurrencies. Interesting. Thank you so much for that insight. Um, I think that's one of the, my favorite things about being a host of this show is getting all this different regional insight from so many different corners of the world and just seeing how crypto is slowly reaching out and bringing us all together. So, yeah, one, one of the things I wanted to touch on right there uh, is just this cool idea about how, you know, crypto really brings together every single country because in people of every single country for the very reason that people all around the world are looking for a non-sovereign type currency. Um, and it's something that could connect, you know, people in Turkey to people in Thailand, to people in America, to people in Mexico. When you have this global currency that is not tied to any nation state, it's just something that's really cool and innovative and, you know, interesting and very forward, you know, moving that, you know, younger kids that are increasingly growing up in this, you know, globally connected world, uh, it makes sense to them. Like, hey, you know, we have an American dollar and a Turkish dollar, but why don't we have a global dollar? And, and I think the, the the longer that, you know, Bitcoin stays around and relevant, the longer uh, or the more that kind of sentiment will pick up. But I, I just kind of, I mean, that wasn't a question. I just wanted to add that. No, I, I agree 100%. It's, it's what's so fascinating and, you know, in a, in a philosophical way, amazing about this. But I also think one of the ideas I've been toying around on my own mind is this idea of the estates of society, right? Maybe you've heard like Mark Zuckerberg, I think a couple of months ago called, um, you know, social media, the fifth estate of the society. And I think crypto is kind of becoming like a sixth estate in that when we, at least, you know, with, with, with Coda, with our community, and, and when you look at other communities of other blockchains as well, the people that are very engaged with this technology are folks that perhaps haven't, have not had a chance to be um, as vocal and as powerful um, as when they are, when they use um, cryptocurrencies. So we're seeing a, a community that's starting to form around this that is that that just doesn't have claims on these other, you know, so to say, estates of society. And I think it's really interesting to see how it how it evolves into the future. So why does the world need a small blockchain? Well, first, let's back up for a second and do a little compare and contrast here. So Bitcoin's blockchain, I believe, is the biggest in the world right now because it's been around the longest. Uh, no, Ethereum has, it's far larger. Really? I think it's 10 times larger, yeah. Oh my God. So then the Ethereum blockchain has to be around two terabytes right now. If it's Correct. Okay. So that's about the size of a hard drive that's going to cost you about 100 bucks at Best Buy right now. The whole blockchain is going to fill up that whole thing. And it's going to take you like a month and a half to sync up the whole blockchain. Wow, that's crazy. So if you want to run an Ethereum node, it's going to take you a whole month just to even get started, if not longer by that time, because it's still adding more blocks. What are the advantages and disadvantages of having the teeniest, tiniest little blockchain in the world, which is what, 22, 25 kilobytes? Yeah, yeah, we, we even got it to be smaller, but um, I'll get to that a bit later. Okay, so I mean, just just in reference, you know, we're talking about a month to sync up Ethereum versus a tenth of a second for Coda. What what are the advantages and disadvantages of having that small blockchain? 
Yes. So let me first touch upon the advantages and, and then the, perhaps the challenges is how, how I would label the disadvantages. So in order to touch upon the advantages, I think it's important to first ask the question, why does one need, want to be a node on a blockchain? And, and what does that mean? The kind of the technical definition is that, you know, someone that has equal and full, equal access to the chain with full security in that they're not, they cannot be compromised by someone um, that may fraudulently passes them data about, about what's going on in the chain. But I think even that question isn't enough. The, 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 the first question from first principles that we want to answer is what are blockchains? And blockchains are ultimately um, these machines which enable anyone to, or everyone to trust the same, the results of the same set of computations um, without having to trust any intermediary, right? Um, that's that's why they became so popular right. and, and powerful. Do you have a friend who's interested in getting into cryptocurrency, but they don't know where to start building their portfolio? Well, we have the answer. It's called Copy Trader by eToro. With Copy Trader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders, just like myself or Bryce or Kevin, at the exact price point and in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply just sign up and copy our trades. Any profits that we make, you do too. Proportional to your investment, of course. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at eToro.com slash crypto101. Thank you. And more so than just computations, you know, that some people don't understand what that means, but really it's just transactions as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, or, or value or trust, as we said, right? And, and so the, the key word here again becomes trust. And um, the, the way in which at first when, let's say, Bitcoin started, people did this is, is um, by running what's called these full nodes, right? Um, they just spun up a client on their, or an app on their device and connected to the Bitcoin network. And it was easy and fast because the, the blockchain wasn't that big. Fast forward a couple for more years, maybe let's fast forward to today, how there's two ways in which you can connect to, let's just keep it at Bitcoin level, right? Because that's the most popular one to the Bitcoin network. One of them is again, run one of these nodes, which as you guys hinted at, um, it's, it's hard and expensive. So just, I think the best, the fastest that I found on about this is it takes six and a half hours on a $2,000 desktop machine. Um, I think Jameson Lopp um, did this horrendous benchmark. I think he runs it every year, which is insane. Like it's not prohibitive, but it, it, an average user isn't going to do this. We live in a mobile first world and, and no one is going to do this unless they, you know, they're technically adapt and, and have, a, have the resources to do this. That's why people, most people have resorted to the second way, which is to get all this data and access from a trusted intermediary, right? This is um, the, the Coinbase's of the world or the, um, the wallets that, you know, many alternatives that people use, which when you think about it, beats the whole purpose of having a blockchain to begin with. Because if, if blockchains are about trusting the, this machine without having to trust any intermediary who can scam you or, or pass you fraudulent data, then, you know, why use a blockchain if you have to trust another third party? It, it just is a, it's, it's a very inefficient machine. It's very slow. Um, so you might as well use a traditional cloud service. So that's, that's what Coda gets to um, at the end of the day, and that's its main advantage. Um, and, and we kind of encapsulate all of this 
reasoning in this word permissionless. Um, because right now, as I mentioned, you have to at some point get permission from someone or, or, or an expensive infrastructure to get access to Bitcoin. Whereas with Coda, the data that you need to get full node security access to your account is three kilobytes, actually. So we need to update it on our website. But just with three kilobytes of data, you have the same level of access. So that enables anyone from their smartphones, whether they're you know, using an iPhone or a $100 Android phone or even a feature phone, to connect to the network using even a 2G network. So this, this opens up to the, this true permissionlessness and this true fairness. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Aspect of crypto to anyone around the world. There's a number of other advantages, but um, I can talk about those later. Let me go into the challenges. There's two fundamental challenges um, with compressing the blockchain this small. Um, so, this compression happens through uh, advanced cryptography, a specific form of it called zero knowledge proofs. And although it's been advancing at an exponential rate, especially starting last year. In fact, there's been more advancements on this by certain metrics than every other year before it combined. And these things have been around since 1985, I think. You're saying um, there's more investments in zero-knowledge proofs? and in- Advancements, sorry, in, in, okay, in terms of um, their performance and new um, what's called constructions, which are new algorithms being put out. Awesome. But they're still... They're not insignificant computations. They're not expensive. It, it costs a couple cents of, of power to produce one zero-knowledge proof for Coda, for example, but they're not insignificant, right? So that puts certain present-day limits on, on how efficient proofs can get. But as I said, we're seeing this start to improve in an exponential way, so this gives us a pathway to Im- improve those limits um, subsequently. The second thing is about the nature of any blockchain in that a true blockchain is decentralized and it's a peer-to-peer network. What that means is you can only, because you know, in a peer-to-peer network, there's all sorts of different nodes, types of nodes with different internet characteristics or, or their machines are different or they're running the right old software, et cetera, that peer-to-peer networks are really hard to make efficient. So there's only so much data you can jam through these. And, you know, you, you can see some of these challenges in Bitcoin, Ethereum, which are the, arguably the two most decentralized networks. But, but that's also why we've learned to turn a skeptical eye to any of the newer blockchains that claim, you know, like these transaction per second numbers, like 60,000 or 22,000 or, or some, something like that. Because if you have a true peer-to-peer network, this is really, really hard stuff. 
So those are the two challenges. One of them, again, applies to all blockchains and one of them specifically applies to Coda. But um, the, the, that latter one, we are seeing exponential improvements in. Very interesting. And one of the things that you just said was kind of kind of worthy of noting, I think, was that you said that Bitcoin and Ethereum are two of the most decentralized blockchains. And I'm kind of wondering if that's just a function of them, of their longevity, essentially, because you know, we were talking about how centralization is a function of blockchain size. So even so, we kind of have like a, we might confuse the viewers here. We're saying, okay, even though block uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum are the largest, they're also the most decentralized. So the vision of Coda is really to become a super decentralized. You know, everybody's running a full node on their phone. There's millions of them. Eventually, going to be the most decentralized. Is that correct? Um, kind of. That's that's actually an interesting point that you highlighted. Um, in that you know they're the most decentralized, despite being the largest. I think there's a number of factors in there. One of them is their longevity, as you said, um, which also has to do with how valuable these blockchains have become and how many people are using it. But it also has to do with how, although hard by objective standards, how relatively easy it is to be a node on the network when compared to other blockchains. So when you look at some of these other ones, they all have like strict hardware requirements and it actually, some of them are even might be larger than Ethereum, some of the smaller ones um, like EOS or et cetera. I don't even know. There's like five full nodes that I could have, that, that I was able to dig up on, on EOS that have all the data. So what, what this tells us is that despite all of this talk of decentralization, you definitely need to have utility and demand on the network to make more people to want to connect to the network and, and provide the service to others. But at the same time, you cannot, you have to design your blockchain in a way that the, the cost benefit of running a node doesn't overweigh on the cost side. And, and that's ultimately, if you go back to 2017, why Bitcoin went through the scaling debate and ultimately the Bitcoin Cash hard fork, because um, Bitcoin's core developers didn't want to make it any more costly to run a node by increasing the block size, um, because they were afraid that the network was, would, would be further centralized. Which is, which is a very long vision view, but there's also obviously a lot of arguments about like, okay, then is Bitcoin stock being digital gold, which seems to be the case for now. But when you look at Bitcoin Cash, for example, which did increase that um, cost of running a node, they did see a massive decrease in the number of nodes that are connected to the network. So I think today there's around 10,000 for Bitcoin, whereas there's 1,000 or 1,500 for Bitcoin Cash. So these things in real life do do actually work out as as you think they would, which is both encouraging and interesting to see. Can you give us an example or an analogy of a zero knowledge proof and how it might work in real life? Yeah. So maybe let me give a, the, a very short explanation of what it is. Um, zero knowledge proofs are proofs, cryptographic proofs of, of a computation that easily allow anyone to verify that that computation was done correctly. So, uh, you know, you can think of, I'll give two examples if that's okay. One of them is a blockchain, right? Um, this, is the, this is what we're working on at Coda. Blockchains are ultimately a series of many, many, many computations, right? To get the current time, you need to do all the computations from when it started. That's a long computation. As we said, it takes, for example, six and a half hours um, on an expensive machine. What if you could replace the entirety of that computation with a proof that allows you to easily verify that someone else did that computation 
um, and they did it correctly. This way, you don't need to rerun the entire blockchain, which is how we're able to get to a node size of a couple kilobytes. Another example unrelated to blockchains is think of, for example, a loan, right? So today, a bank issues a loan, and then other people start trading it, right? Um, such as the infamous example being mortgages. What happens when other people start trading in it and assigning it value is they ultimately trust the bank or the institution that issued that loan, that they did it correctly, that they got the right data, that they applied the right um, interest rate formula, right? And that trust can become um, you know, a, a, a house of cards. And once it starts toppling over, then we go into bad situations like we did about 13 years ago. What if you could issue a loan with a zero-knowledge proof attached to it? This would allow you to say, okay, here's a loan. This is, you know, it's, it's properties. And I can see that someone calculated this loan and issued this loan by applying this X algorithm to it, by getting these ABC data points from, to, from whom they issued the loan to. And they did all the computation as they should have. And I can verify that that is indeed correctly done so that this person who wants to trade it trusts the integrity of, of that loan. So this certainly enables it to be way more open. And, you know, per how we just described blockchains all being about trust, this is interestingly also about trust. You can, all, you can trust that the computation was correctly, that was done correctly, so that peer-to-peer trading of complex stuff becomes way more possible and transparent. One of the analogies I always like to think of in a world that has zero-knowledge proofs everywhere is airport security. You know, we don't need to have a ticket and a passport and a special boarding pass and uh, you know TSA pre-check when we could simply just have a QR code that references all that stuff that's stored on a blockchain. And we just simply pass that through one scanner and it just simply says if this person is allowed to board or not. They don't need to see my name. They don't need to see my address. They don't need to see my ticket number. All that stuff can just be done on the back end. And if I don't want some weird security guy who's staring me in the eyes a little too deeply to know who I am and be able to like track me later, you know, zero knowledge proofs is just a simple yes or no without all that other personal identifiable information being you know, expressed everywhere. Because what happens if I lose my ticket or I drop my passport on the ground? I'm in a lot of trouble. And zero knowledge proofs makes a world without all that stuff possible. Yeah, that's a. I'm going to reuse that example. That's a great one. It's 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 almost magical, and and some people have actually defined it as magical. But I guess cryptography is is kind of magical overall. It really is. So without um, a consensus, though, none of this works. And you guys use something called Oberos. And can you explain why this consensus algorithm is so unique and vital? And are you guys the only ones that use it, or are there some other projects as well? Yeah, so slight difference in pronunciation, Ouroboros, uh, which I think means like this weird historical um, symbol of a snake that's eating its own tail, is you know a consensus algorithm that's in the you know this proof of stake family, let's say. And just real quick on proof of stake versus proof of work. Proof of stake allows um, people to take part in consensus without having to, you know, burn uh, megawatts of energy and contribute to global warming. 
but instead they can you know use the currency of the underlying blockchain. So Ouroboros is actually was actually invented by the Cardano team. So those familiar with Cardano is it's another blockchain project and it's a formally verified um, consensus mechanism, which means that mathematically it is sound. So what we did um, is we took Ouroboros and we call it like a variant of, of the entire consensus mechanism and applied or changed a couple things so that it works in a um, zero knowledge proof setting. And to our knowledge, um, there's a couple other projects that also use similar variants of Ouroboros. Well, first of all, Cardano uses their own in- implementation. Polkadot, I think, also uses a, a variant of it. But the reason um, we're starting to see more and more implementations and usage of Ouroboros is, number one, as I said, it's formally verified, so you can, um, you can see that it's secure. Number two is it's probabilistic. So when you look at most of the consensus mechanisms used today in proof-of-stake land, they're what's called practical Byzantine fault tolerant. And what, what this does is it, these systems can only give you security guarantees um, up to 66% honest actors, um, or sorry, six, at least 66% of the actors have to be honest to ensure or, or for you to be able to trust the consensus. Whereas when it's probabilistic, similar to Bitcoin, you have you can go as as low as fifty percent plus, um, you know, an arbitrary number. So fifty one percent, let's say, and that's why there's this infamous word of a fifty one percent attack, right? Because if if fifty one percent of the network is acting dishonestly, then they can fool the rest of the network. So this gives us much further security guarantees as well as um, decentralization capabilities. And then the third reason is that it has a unlimited validator set. Um, so validators in proof-of-stake networks are similar to miners in, in Bitcoin and other proof-of-work networks. And, and again, the contrast is um, compared to these practical Byzantine fault tolerance systems in that most of those can are, are capped at, at most, I think the highest I've seen is 120 validators. And unlimited validator sets are much, much better because of two reasons. One of them is anyone can stake and validate, right? Um, and that's, again, the whole purpose um, or the whole point of blockchains is to be fair and open. Um, and then the second reason is it, it's, it allows them to be much more decentralized because A, no one has to be in a privileged position and B, um, you can make yourself much more private as well as much more diversified without having to worry about being one of those privileged entities that can validate. Very cool. All right. Well, the last um, the last thing I want to talk about here in regards to Coda before we go to some closing questions, I want to know about the Snarket Place. So A, I really like the name Snarket Place. Um, but, but B, tell us a little bit about what this um, application store for zero-knowledge proof apps is. Yeah. So all, all credit for any pun with Snark in it goes to our um, CTO, Isaac. So he has a lot of great ones, Snark Place being one. So Snark Place stands for Snark Marketplace. And Snarks are a specific algorithm um, for zero-knowledge proofs or, or a family of algorithms uh, and, and is one of, one of the ones that we use in Coda. And what the Snark Place is, is it is a marketplace for the buying and selling of Snark proofs to be able to compress the code of blockchain. And the reason we have to have this in within the protocol is, um, as I mentioned, snark proofs, although they're 
cheap, they're not insignificant in how costly they are. And also, you can always get more efficient in how cheaply and fast you can produce smart proofs. Um, in fact, um, we ran a challenge, for example, about a year ago, um, where you know various people with expertise in GPU algorithms, for example, were able to get up to, I think, four times speed ups in how fast one of these can be computed um, you know, per, compared to the prior best um, efficient algorithm. So we wanted to enable this marketplace for um, these specialized entities to be able to produce these snark proofs. And then for block producers or these validators to be able to purchase the cheapest one. So what this enables is for the blockchain to be essentially compressed in the cheapest and most efficient way. And what it also enables is another for another set of actors in our blockchain to be to be supported economically. Uh, those that want to you know, produce or, or, or produce these snark proofs by contributing their compute power. So if you have a GPU at home or, or even a CPU, actually, uh, much like the early days of Bitcoin, you can actually start you know um, applying your machine for this. The benefit compared to earlier days of Bitcoin is it never gets harder because this isn't about consensus or proof of work or any of that stuff. It's 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 about you know doing a computation, which you have a chance of always making it, it, it easier and more efficient. So this gives people an incentive to continue improving it without having to be or without having to worry about being pushed out of um, of this economic uh, benefit that they can get. All right. Very cool. Very cool. So we have a last, uh, a couple questions that we ask every guest that comes on the show just to get a little bit of color uh, into who you are as a person and kind of what drives you. Uh, so the first question I want to ask is of all the people in crypto that you've come into contact with, who has been uh, maybe the most inspiring or has left a really strong impression? Yeah. Um, I'm going to give a an original answer, perhaps, to your. I think um, Vitalik Buterin, creator of Ethereum, is is um, like I've met him, uh, but you know I, I don't have like a personal relationship with him. But based on what I know, um, he's just uh, obviously he's done a lot of great s- stuff for this space. But I think it's safe to say that he's one of the rare individuals that is truly driven by his own intellectual curiosity about this, less so if at all about you know personal gains or, or financial motives. Um, he, I think time and time again, he's shown that he really wants to push the space forward and, and is just um, trying to, you know, per his own values, contribute to human society. Um, he, he may have done mistakes, he may have misjudged certain things about Ethereum's roadmap, etc. But, you know, we're all humans at the end of the day. So I've been very, very um, in, impressed and humbled by like, just his approach, because, you know, as we all know, our industry is full of rather unshady characters, and, and Vitalik is definitely not one of them. Well said. Yeah, we get that answer a lot around here, but everyone has their own little spin on it. And it's really, really interesting to have the man, the myth, the legend that is Vitalik Buterin continuing to be built up. So, and he deserves it. He really does. Besides Coda, and I guess besides Ethereum as well, what's one company you think is going to have the greatest impact on the crypto space going forward from here? I think, or I hope the answer is none. Um, the reason being like, this shouldn't be about companies, right? It should be more about communities or, or at best nonprofits that, you know, such as foundations of different projects. Sure. It could be a foundation. It could be a project, uh, whatever it might be. It doesn't necessarily have to be a company like Ripple. Yeah. 
Well, let me think of um, a foundation example then. I think um, folks like in the in Coin Center and others do a great job at just educating regulators and, and what's going on in our industry. And, and you know, we, we hope to also, um, I mean, we'll be having a foundation here that, that contributes to the development of the Coda project um, past its main net. So, yeah, I think I just stand by that, um, you know, it's, this should be less about for-profit companies, um, at least after a certain maturity for each project, because these are ultimately common goods and open source projects. Great, great answer. Uh, Coin Center, that's something that we haven't heard yet. So let's all go check that out, Coin Center, see what they're doing over there. And then lastly, if this was the first podcast someone getting into this space heard, what would you want them to know? I think... This was one of my first revelations as well when I started reading about crypto is that money is a social construct um, that's built on who the society at large trusts, right? Like learning what money is and isn't, which is ironic because it's something everyone uses every single day, is is one of the biggest things. And I think it's important about this again, I'm going to come back to the trust word because trust is on a decrease trust in institutions and governments is in, in a decrease around the entire world because of information technology. Um, right. Because we all know so much more about what goes inside these institutions um, that we didn't know before. And when you think about it, if money is also a social construct built on trust, how long until that changes, right? Because we don't trust our governments enough or, or institutions enough. And if we can trust each other and, and, and this, collective consciousness of the society, then um, then what does that mean for cryptocurrencies and, and how can that change the entire you know concept of money, which is, again, something everyone uses every single day. Brilliant. All right, Emre, thank you so much uh, for spending the last uh, 40, 45 minutes with us today on Crypto 101. We look forward to keeping tabs on you and all the great things coming out of the team over at Coda. Thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure. Ciao. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.